Hi everyone, good evening from San Francisco. I'm Nicole Carbajal. And I'm Bernie Lim. Welcome to Woke Woke Docs, a podcast about the lives of women of color in medicine. All views are those of the person speaking, not their employer. For today's episode, we are so hyped to introduce Zoe Julian, an amazing doctor who is currently finishing up her last year of residency in obstetrics and gynecology at UCSF. This is a special episode to us. You'll hear more about Zoe's incredible insight and perspectives on what it means to embody empathy, social justice, and resilience throughout her journey in medicine. Hearing her practical and spiritual words of wisdom was incredibly life-giving to us. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Zoe, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. It is 7.40 p.m. It was a (laughs) school night. It was a work (laughs) night. And we are here. (laughs) Class for us. Um, Thanks so much for being here. Mm -hmm. Um, You do incredible work. Thank you. And we're just wondering, with all the work that you do and everything that you hope to embody and advocate for, walk us through a typical day for you. How does that really look like? Does it, does your clinical practice and your practice with medicine kind of evolve throughout the day or throughout the week? How does a typical day look like for you? Yeah, so for some context, I'm in my final year, praise God and ancestors and everyone um, <laughs> um, <laughs> of OBGYN residency here hey. at UCSF. Ooh. And so my typical day is spent um, now heavily in involved in clinical care just as the nature of being a clinical trainee um, but my role is much more um, supervisory and um, facilitating the experience of more junior learners but also of the patients that we care for collectively um, and that is a at times a really empowering position to be in and at other times a really frustrating, challenging position to be in. Um, but in in either situation, certainly my time is mostly absorbed in clinical care, um, trying to fit in my other passions in between with, there it seems like a consistent multitasking all day long, all day <laughs> long. Curr- <laughs> currently I'm in, um, in an outpatient rotation at San Francisco General, so um, just, four computer screens up at all times all times all times Mm -hmm. calling calling patients emailing providers consulting providers here talking to my co-residents and other parts of the hospital trying to figure out what this patient needs and how we can get him or her the things that they need um it's really humbling work taking care of people, attempting to take care of people Mm. in the ways that you have been trained to prioritize, but at least for me in ways that I also try to to meet people where they're at and give them the things that they need and help them achieve the goals that they want to achieve when they show up to the Mm -hmm. office, to the hospital for their surgery, whatever it is. Um, It's a consistent process of learning and unlearning at the same time. Mm Um, which can feel pretty disorienting. <laughs> um, but I think that's also, that also is part of the humbling part of it. 
Um, I get to tell people fantastic news that they've been looking forward to. I get to tell people news that brings them relief. And then other times I have to tell them things that quite frankly break their heart um, or terrify them or make them feel shame or humiliation. Um, and bearing witness to that is something that I never take for granted. Mm. Um, and I really try to keep present and hold sacred, even if it's just a quick phone call in the middle of sending five other emails and helping my intern you know, do an ultrasound in another room. Um, and it can be exhausting to keep present in that way, but it's something that I try to reinforce for myself every day, no matter how busy or how calm the day goes. Um, I send a lot of emails. <laughs> a lot. You feel some type of way about that? I do. <laughs> <laughs> because some of them, maybe I don't need to send. Mm. And somebody else could. But I'm doing it. But I'm doing it. Because that's, that's, as I always, that's what the ladies need. So that's what I'm doing. Mm. Um, so that's my day. Wow. Yeah, that's my day. I get home. I try to make space for myself, for my partner, for my family. I try to eat somewhat healthily. I try to sleep somewhat successfully. Um, I never work out. I'm not going to pretend like I do. <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> not saying that's a model to follow, but that is the reality of my, of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. What is the self-care you practice for you all those moments that you stay present? How do you stay so grounded? Yeah. Um, keeping a lot of non-medical people around me. Mm. Mm. Yep. Literally. <laughs> oh my gosh. That has been so resonant. Really? Yes. That's yes. your key to success. I mean, if you want to call it success. Yeah. Mm. I mean, my, my partner um, is just a fucking badass and like um, challenges me and reminds me in my moments of doubt and insecurity who I have always said that I was mm -hmm. and that's really important um, and I work with some of the best people mm. like my co-residents I'm I am so I have so much gratitude for them and their passion and our shared common commitment to providing people and often specifically women with the care that they deserve. Mm -hmm. And I know that that is not the experience of everyone in my position as a clinical trainee, mm -hmm. especially in OBGYN, which right. makes me really sad and angry because mm -hmm. um, women deserve everything. Um, so the people, the, the, the people around me are the ones that help to keep me grounded. And participating in experiences like this, um, I, try to, I try to expose myself as much to the thoughts and views of people outside of my sphere that help impact me, but also people that I feel akin to. Um, and so black queer women in every space are who I listen to, who I follow on social media, who I read about and watch their content. And I just try to keep keep pushing myself outside of the, the doctrines that our institutions are always teaching us. Um, 
And then one thing I wish I did more of is say no. Mm. Um, everyone who knows me well will agree <laughs> that I really struggle to say no. Mm. Um, especially when I know that my no means someone else is going to be impacted. Even if that isn't mm. a person that I really feel connected to or responsible for, just knowing that other people are impacted by the things that I do and don't do hmm. or the decisions I do make and I don't make um, can be a struggle for me. So that is a self-care practice I am trying to develop. Hmm. And I will say that I have had the, exper the benefit now of an experience of reflecting over the last three and a half years of my clinical training where I actually have brain space to reflect and and reground myself but there were certainly times where I was just pushing through mm -hmm. to get through this rotation to get through this tumor board I had to prep to get through whatever that specific short-term goal or task was um, and that I think that that was my brain and spirits way of protecting me so that I could complete whatever that thing is mm -hmm. um, cuz you, you can't possibly have the capacity all the time to be yeah. in like a consistent reflective space. It's just too overwhelming. Mm. So mm. I I recognize that that's that ebbs and flows, mm -hmm. and I just let it let it ebb and flow as it does, and try not to beat myself up about it when I feel like I'm in a robot mode, but also mm. not um, also not take the space for granted when it does come for me to like think about what it is I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Awesome. Could you yeah. tell us a little more about your journey into medicine and then specifically OBGYN mm -hmm. and also have you always had these amazing frameworks of social justice no. since the very beginning <laughs> and <No>. what, <laughs> who were the people or the things or the books or the mm -hmm. events that really you were like, wow, my position as a physician, my identity really has, um, really can have an impact and needs to have an impact. So if you could tell us more about that journey. Yeah, definitely. So I um, came to undergrad as an engineering major because I thought math and science was cool <laughs> and <laughs> I could like help people. <laughs> <laughs> right, I could help people in some significant way mm. and my parents would be proud of me. Mm. And so that's what I started to pursue. And I always thought about medicine kind of hanging out in the back of my mind but didn't have any real concrete experiences around healthcare other than being a patient until um, until like junior year of college. And I care, I was just trying to remember this with a friend of mine the other day. I can't remember the name of the class, but there was a class that was offered at my school where you could shadow emergency medicine physicians at the academic medical centers, ED. Um, and they also had like a seminar series that went with it and like you could meet other doctors and learn about their careers and all those types of things. And that's when I started to think about it more and more. Um, but I was, not the, I was not the star student. I was not the star test taker. And so it was a really conscious decision for me to be like, one, I want to kind of help. If I'm going to go after medical school, I got to make some really um, pivotal choices about how I'm spending my time in college to like booster up those things to jump through the hoops. Um, and decide that that was worth it. So that was first. And then I wanted to save some money. So I went and got a job <laughs> as an engineer. Because <laughs> um, I worked so hard to get this real fancy mm. degree. Let me mm -hmm. go use it, at least for a minute. Right. So um, 
I lived and worked in Boston for a big medical device company for about a year, you know, saved up my pennies and um, was applying to medical school during that time. And I went through this really, um, I think, really helpful exercise for me when it comes to these, like, application points that I've kind of done every step of the way is I just record myself talking about whatever it is that I whatever the question is mm-hmm. um, that the application is presenting to me mm-hmm. and usually through that process I like find my way towards a personal statement <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, wow. and that's what I did for medical school I just like sat in my apartment and was recording myself on my computer talking about why I thought being a doctor was an important thing and at that point I really saw physicians, and now I speak more broadly, healthcare providers as these bridges between science and people, um, and being kind of the front line to distill all of this information and experiences of all these, now I I have the insight to many different types of professionals, down to a person who's sitting in front of you and what's gonna Mm -hmm. match up with their values and what they need. and so that's that's kind of where I housed myself, but I certainly didn't have the type of critical analysis that I've developed throughout first medical school and then certainly even more so as a resident, but not as a result of like my academic courses mm-hmm. or um, or curriculum in that regard, but more so about the things that were just happening in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. So I was a... What year was that? I think a third year, fourth year medical student when Mike Brown was killed um, in Ferguson. And the climate in Atlanta was incredibly politically charged. Mm -hmm. And being that that was the home of the civil rights movement in the 60s, the parallels as far as what young organizers were doing around Black Lives Matter in Atlanta just could not be ignored. Um, and being a, a black queer person and in black queer circles, that overlap has always been true. Mm-hmm. That black folks and folks of color and queer folks have always been on the ground in every social movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was no different. And so it was a natural overlap that in the communities, spaces I was in, that this is what people were talking about. Um, and my access to those definitely ebbed and flowed over time. But while I was in Atlanta and in med school and in, then in public health school, I, I got an MPH while I was there as well, my time spent in those other circles really started forcing me to think critically about what was happening for me academically um, and what Black Lives Matter meant as a medical student and like in a hospital where I was caring for a lot of black people mm-hmm. um, who sat at lots of different intersections in their identities and were affected by the healthcare system in lots of ways and probably medical school and in those activist circles were the first time I was hearing people like actively talk about white supremacy beyond like a book I read and applying it in real time. And I was like, hmm, hmm, I gotta learn more. And so like the, the me search in me just wanted to learn more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really helped to start frame, framing then what I was looking for in a residency program. So mm-hmm. when I applied to residency, I did the same thing. I sat down, I started recording myself talking about my experiences and things that inspired me and what I wanted to be and just dream. Um, and then this personal statement came out that was really centered around what it means to create safe space for people mm-hmm. within the healthcare system. Um, and o- OBGYN, I found my way 
Um, it was my first clinical rotation. Hmm. And I was like, this is awesome. But is it just because I'm finally not in the classroom? Or mm. is it because I'm actually enjoying the work that I'm doing? And I just kind of held on to that enjoyment of that experience. And then along the way, in all of my different clinical rotations, I kept comparing it back. And I was like, why am I doing that? It must be because I like actually really enjoyed this. <laughs> and then going to public health school helped me to take some time away from the clinical space and develop my ideas and learn more and more and more about you know, health disparities work and what was happening in the public health space around these issues. And once I saw that my passions were aligning along sexual reproductive health and women specifically at that time and um, LGBTQ community, it became very clear that like that's what made sense for me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the next step. Um, and now, I, I guess I'm, I could announce this. I just found out yesterday that my next step in training, <laughs> which is another step in training, <laughs> um, is I'll be starting at Duke University as a hey. national clinician scholar um, in their program, which I'm so, so excited about. Yes. A bit overwhelmed, but very excited. Sweating out here. <laughs> <laughs> cool. yeah. awesome. So Congratulations. Really Thank you. Um, and in preparing for that, then I was able to bring all of these experiences and these new critical analyses that I've been thinking about and learning about and reading about and, and reframing now the next evolution of my purpose, of my goals, of my dreams. Um, when you ask about like specific books or texts or sources, certainly Dorothy Roberts' Killing the Black Body yes. just blew my blew mind open mind. open Crazy. and my um one of and the person who introduced me to that book is one of my dear mentors sarah whetstone who's an OBGYN faculty member here who is an incredible educator um and advocate and community grounded person mm. and i have while i've really benefited from the commitment of the OBGYN department here to social justice issues um with varying degrees of success, but certainly conversations, curriculum, grand round speakers, books that people have introduced me to, support for research projects that I thought were important based on the things I started to learn. Um, going to Berkeley and learning about structural competency is a new, not so new now, but as a, a novel and um, important evolution of social determinants of health and cultural humility and what that means as a, as a way to train the healthcare workforce, like all these ideas were just, I felt like I was in this really fruitful environment and because mm -hmm. I'm a yes person, I probably mm -hmm. overcommitted myself, <laughs> but I got to I be exposed to a lot of new ideas that mm -hmm. I don't think I would have otherwise. Right. Mm -hmm. um, does that answer your question? Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also congrats again. Thank that you. That is yeah. super awesome Thank news. you, thank you. Yeah. Um, so through this journey, um, what challenges did you face um, because of the yeah. intersections of the identities that you hold? Mm -hmm. mm. A lot. Um, I think for any person who comes from a historically marginalized community that entering an institution with this 
level of power and prestige and reputation, um, that imposter syndrome is inevitable. Um, and I felt that a lot as a junior resident here. Um, and kind of being able to find ways to silence, to silence those voices. And then what continues to be both empowering but also heartbreaking for me is when I see my juniors going through those same experiences again. Mm. Um, and I feel like, you know, we like, we like, I'm an optimist, so I like to think, oh, look how much has changed. Like, we had Kamara Phyllis Jones come to our grand rounds and talk about structural racism. And like, that would have never happened when I was an intern. And mm -hmm. like, all of these things that make me feel like we're getting somewhere. Um, and then it feels so discouraging when the folks that we've brought here are still having the same experiences that I had when I got here four years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the challenges that it frustrates me, but I also remember like, white supremacy has been around for a really long time. Very so long like, time. getting rid of us gonna take more than four years. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying. We're trying. <laughs> um, so that helps, that helps to ground me a lot, um, that this is a marathon type situation. Um, other challenges, just like basic hygiene, doing my laundry, mm. sleeping enough, um, like I said, I don't exercise. That's I, that I should do that. That's something people should do. <laughs> um, and then just having a, the emotional capacity um, for my friends and family when they need me, which I don't always have. Mm. Um, and I'm sure there were things there are things that I could do in the way that I approach my work that would give me more capacity. Quite frankly, for the intimate relationships in my life. Um, and that's part of my like, yes problem. Mm. Um, but that also there are moments where like, I, I wouldn't feel, um, I wouldn't feel true to who I am as a provider if I didn't approach my work in the way that I do as, and with the capacity that I try to for the people I'm taking care of because it means so much to me. Um, so that, that balance, that good old work-life balance is <laughs> <laughs> a forever <Yeah>. pursuit. <laughs> um, and I'm from the East Coast originally. My family is in northern New Jersey. Um, my medical school friends, I went to Emory for medical school in Atlanta. My medical school friends are now dispersed everywhere and just being far from folks. Um, time zones are tricky. <laughs> and when you work, you know, 18-hour days, it can be hard when no one else is awake on the East Coast when you get home from work. Mm -hmm. um, my partner and I were long distance my first year of residency. That sucked. I do not advise people do that if they can <laughs> help it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, a lot of that has been challenging for sure. Um, but some of those challenges are unique to me and unique to UCSF, and many of them are not. Many of them, I think, are pretty ubiquitous um, for any resident, but especially for a person who um, comes from identities that have been historically and persistently marginalized. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I hold great, I feel like my the intersections of my identities grant me great gifts. Um, mm -hmm. 
and great access to so many different types of people and to so many different types of mentors. And mentorship has been a huge part of my journey every step of the way. Um, and, um, and that has, you know, been true 20 times over here as well. Um, so that also helps with the challenges too. Yeah, for sure. I'm wondering when you um, talk about the different things that maybe are not unique to you and are just kind of like mm -hmm. prevalent within the medical field and when mm -hmm. within healthcare professionals mm -hmm. in general, um, something in your in your Twitter Twitter bio that really intrigued me was how you um, talked about how you're trying to decolonize medicine and decolonize yourself. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, I think like one is impossible without the other. Like we are all colonized in this mm. country. Um, and even even as a black queer person um, who comes from these communities that for me hold incredible power but have been suppressed and oppressed for so long, I'm a highly educated, middle upper, upper middle class socioeconomic background, um, cisgendered person, able-bodied person, um, I and once I am a not trained or not in training physician, will hold incredible economic and political power that nobody in my family has ever had before. Mm. Um, and so, I try to be real honest with myself about what it means to be a doctor, even though not even though in addition to being a black queer woman, um, that that I have to continue to interrogate my own my own privilege all the time mm -hmm. and check myself all the time, mm -hmm. no matter what kind of space I'm in, whether I'm the only in a space or whether I'm amongst the majority. Mm -hmm. um, and that helps me when I get impatient, especially with white folks around mm -hmm. their own privilege around things. Mm -hmm. um, because who am I to, who am I to assume or rather, who am I to ignore the fact that I live privileged in a privileged identity too? Mm. Mm -hmm. um, so that help that helps me a lot when um, empathy is hard to find. Hmm. Um, and then, when it comes to the like decolonizing of medicine, I was talking to one of my interns about this the other day, just like trying to make even the smallest but like really intentional choices. Mm -hmm. and I've been focusing a lot on language recently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and something that every resident has to do but despises is documentation. We have this saying that it didn't happen if you didn't write it down. And so you're just constantly, it feels like you spend more time documenting about the 15 minutes that you spent with a patient compared to the hour that you spend documenting about those 15 minutes that you spent with a patient. Um, and even like small changes in language around compliance or adherence mm -hmm. to medications, um, whether, you know, folks are using, um, like, racial and ethnic markers in their one-liners to describe a patient in their chief complaint. Mm -hmm. um, I've been thinking a lot about mistrust. There's a thing that people say all the time about patients' mistrust of the medical system, and then inevitably the Tuskegee study slide pops up, and here... Killigan and forced sterilization, at least in OBGYN spaces, mm. pops up, and mm -hmm. all of these kind of case studies of, of coercive mm -hmm. acts that mm -hmm. have happened mm -hmm. um, to people that validate their mistrust. And 
I just got really upset the other day. Mm. I'm fueled a lot by the things that piss me off. And I just got really <laughs> upset the other day <laughs> seeing this patient who kept being described in all of the notes from, from well-intentioned, social justice-oriented providers mm. about her as like holding mistrust to the medical system. And I'm like, well, can I curse? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, no shit, she mistrusts the medical <laughs> system. The system has given her no reason right. for her to trust us. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. an appropriate response. It's an appropriate response to mm -hmm. her lived experience. Right. Right. Um, and so, like, putting, putting the onus back on us mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. providers, as an institution um, rooted in historical injustice, like, since the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like trying to, you know, even changing in my no rather than writing like mistrust the medical system, I put like has lived experiences congruent with historical injustice in medicine. Mm -hmm. And like maybe nobody will ever read that. Like it's buried in this multi paragraph note about my encounter with her and mm -hmm. our counseling, but like somebody might. Like a medical student might. Oh my gosh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> somebody <laughs> might, and it may make them think about things a little different. They may be like, "Oh, here goes this like person on their soapbox," but it also may make <laughs> them take pause right. and just. To me, that's still disruptive, you know. Mm -hmm. So trying to find like realistic ways to be disruptive, while still being a trainee, while still being a person of incredible privilege, um, is like what I think that I've what my goal has been in a very like realistic feasible way mm -hmm. um and i think everyone can do that in their own spheres of influence no matter what training level you are no matter no matter anything like everyone can find small ways to be disruptive if that's your goal mm -hmm. yeah. i think in medicine we learn a lot about um like our ancestors as more of like um problems right like mm. pathologizing a lot of mm -hmm. individuals right mm -hmm. um and i think it becomes an unwelcoming space for people from different backgrounds to yeah. come into medicine yeah. um when all they're learning about is how like how they're pathologized yep mm -hmm. um and so i think my my question is imposter syndrome has this name but really it's a lot of like all of these things happening mm -hmm. um through this this whole process um and so I guess what is your advice for students that are coming into this and mm -hmm. are already experiencing imposter syndrome? And then, you know, for residents that are just starting the residency, like mm -hmm. what do you tell people that you see struggling through it like you did? Mm -hmm. um, I try to remind, remind those specific individuals, like you couldn't have gotten here by accident. Mm -hmm. It is actually impossible for several reasons. One, it's just like too damn hard. Like it's too, <laughs> the number of people who aspire to get to medical school That's so true. and the ratio of the ones who actually get to medical school, none of this is by surprise. Like mm. you, you, were, you were placed in specific positions either by other people or by yourself um, and afforded certain opportunities that you were able to take advantage of to get you to this place. Like none mm -hmm. of this is by mistake. So I try to remind people of that because mm -hmm. I think part of it is the like, how did I get here? I'm not supposed to be here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of it too that I, I found a lot of grounding in is that, especially in a white supremacist institution like medicine, it was never created mm -hmm. sp for people of color, mm -hmm. for women, for LGBTQ folks to be here anyway. Mm -hmm. So if you are here, that is definitely your doing, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. everything about the system has tried to marginalize you and keep you out. Mm -hmm. um, 
So that is another thing that I, rem that I remind myself and, and being the chief resident role now in my juniors, um, that none of this is random. Like this is what you did. And then I hold a lot of strength in where I come from and who I come from. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I think the like intention of putting specific types of images and messages in front of you that are affirming and truthful mm -hmm. about our ancestors and the communities that we come from, um, especially in freedom struggles, mm -hmm. really helps to for me to combat that those feelings and those you know that stereotype threat and those those feelings of imposter um, because it's a lie. It's a lie that I'm not capable. It's a lie that everything about me and my people is bad and pathologized and illness and sickness because I, I, I know that that's not true um, because I continue to reinforce it with the things that I read, with the things that I watch, with the things that float up on all of, you know, we consume so much media these days that you get to choose who you follow. You get to choose um, what types of things you put in front of yourself. And so I really try to, with intention, put positive images of black folks, of queer folks, of brown folks, of differently abled folks, of, of all of those communities that I either am from or feel in solidarity with mm -hmm. to keep combating the other messages that are inevitably coming my way okay. mm -hmm. um, to fortify myself mm -hmm. yeah. um, and trying to share those with other people to help fortify them too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And and sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it's just hard. Mm -hmm. And like, that's okay. You, mm -hmm. You're not going to be um, at capacity and capable and strong all the time. It's just not realistic. Right, and I think right. that's the other trap that we fall into mm -hmm. is like, I have to persevere. I have to overcome everything at every moment. And that's just not human. Mm -hmm. Like you get to be a human <laughs> and humans fail <laughs> and humans get You're angry right. and humans are sad yep. and humans mm -hmm. have a breath of emotional experience. So mm -hmm. like that's allowed. Um, but what we also are inevitably is resilient. Otherwise we wouldn't have gotten here. Mm -hmm. um, so I try to remind myself of that. Like this is just the newest iteration of the same struggle. And if I did it all those other times, I'm going to do it this time, too. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the New York Times Health column recently published this article about the, associ the association of um, racial differences in pelvic size with mm. black maternal mortality rates. Mm. Um, I don't know if you saw that article. I haven't. Um I think, uh, yeah, a lot of people on my Twitter feed were kind of reposting it mm. and really challenging a lot of those ideas. Mm -hmm. But um, me and Nicole have been really interested in this new phenomenon in medicine that seeks to biologize race mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and attribute that to health disparities and also kind of this movement of precision medicine. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering what are your thoughts on that, mm -hmm. um, especially in the OB-GYN field? Yeah, no, I think... We, per we perpetuate those stereotypes ourselves even, you know, as residents. I know, and I'm implicating myself in this, my peers and I make jokes all the time that when um, a woman who comes into labor and delivery, or I should say a birthing person who comes into labor and delivery who's Asian and their other birthing partner is white, 
that they're inevitably either going to have a really bad perineal tear or like something traumatic is going to happen because that big baby is coming through a small perineum. And I remember the first time I heard one of my senior residents say something like that. And I kind of like, hmm. I didn't have the space to sit and process it. I was running around trying mm-hmm, to like mm-hmm. answer 50,000 pages and, and order the Tylenol right and like whatever it is that I was doing. <laughs> I just didn't like have the brain space to really sit with that. But it's it's a very sm- specific kind of thing that I keep coming back to over and over again when I hear my peers say it, um, when I've said it myself. And I'm like, what is that about? Like, Zoe, what mm-hmm. is that really about? Mm-hmm. Um and that's the first thing that popped to my mind when you referenced this article, which admittedly I haven't read. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there's, especially within medicine, within healthcare, I don't think this, I mean, from my perception, I don't think this happens as much in nursing or happens as much in other allied health professions as it mm. does with physicians specifically. Um, and I think there's a whole host of reasons for that. But I think it's easy. It's easier for us to explain away differences in outcomes, differences in, 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 in disparities and in, in issues with equity to biology because that, that completely relieves us of any responsibility, mm. right? It's the, it's the ultimate scapegoat, especially in a field where science and evidence is held at the highest standard of truth. Mm-hmm. So if I can show that people with... Um, you know, this shaped pelvis versus that shaped pelvis, and black women tend to have this shaped pelvis more often, and Asian women tend to have this shaped pelvis more often, and that must be the reason that black women have more C-sections than Asian women or white women. That's just so freeing from any kind of accountability mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As, a, as an institution, as a system, as a field, mm-hmm. as providers. Um, and those, I feel like th- this is not the first time Right. right, like throughout certain points in history, those tropes become more and more publicized and kind of, even in a, in a pseudoscientific way, become guiding principle for practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, I think it's total bullshit. And I think what we must do if we ever want to achieve equitable outcomes is interrogate the ways in which we as providers create, perpetuate, and maintain them. Um, And then two, realize that we are not the bearers of all truth and answer Mm -hmm. in these issues. Mm -hmm. That like folks who are being, who are, I'm not even gonna say suffering, folks who are being most greatly affected have found their own ways to survive. So Mm -hmm. clearly they know. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Um, And I've been thinking about that a lot in my own career, and now I I still think it's so ironic that I'm going to be in a research fellowship. I think about this all the time. I'm like, this is so ridiculous. Like, (laughs) because on one hand, I feel totally, I'm sure people at Duke are going to be mortified when they hear this, but like totally divested from the enterprise that is Mm. biomedical research. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like the questions that I ask and that any time I ask them, people are like, you're a researcher. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But 
it, I guess it kind of comes back to what I was talking about before about this like reformist revolutionary paradigm and like mm -hmm. what it means to like be within a research enterprise, which is different than the clinical space. Um, and how can you disrupt there, right? Even in the questions that you ask, the voices that you choose to collect um, and give space for, for others to hear who otherwise aren't listening. Um, so yeah. I guess, I guess that's what I think about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, okay, so it's kind of getting towards the end, and we want to make sure we ask. Yeah. That was so fast. Yeah, so this was a badass conversation. Yeah, it's <laughs> so, so many fast. gems. I was like <laughs> typing down my little sticky note over here. <laughs> um, so I guess one of the things is what advice do you have for increasing representation in medicine? Mm. Um, and why do we need to be here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was going to say the first question is, does representation matter? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like, and sometimes I think yes, and sometimes I think no, and sometimes I think, I mean, it, it has, we have to start someplace, right? But mm -hmm. I think, one, yes. Because, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think it does matter. I think we need to be here um, because even amongst, and I've seen this within my own department and my own faculty, even amongst the most well-intentioned, well-read, I've mm -hmm. read all the books, I've read Audre Lorde, I've read, you know, Dorothy Roberts, I've read, I'm as schooled as one could possibly be. <laughs> if you... <laughs> If you are only in a space where everyone else is just like you, you have no idea what your blind spots are. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you don't know, and mm -hmm. you'll never learn it if nobody new shows up to mm -hmm. that space or is, is afforded the option to come into that space. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're so necessary. Mm -hmm. um, because we have things to offer. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that's my first answer to your question, Bernie. Thanks. <laughs> but to the question of how, I think the things that we do have to be paid for. Mm -hmm. the, I think too often, um, people of color, women of color specifically, I think about in my department, my co-residents, medical students, all the way up to faculty and senior leadership, do so much for free. That doesn't get acknowledged um, in the ways that the institution of medicine assigns value to stuff. So the mm -hmm. ways that mm -hmm. things are assigned value and people are seen as valuable is either through money, through publications, through titles. And whether or not you ascribe to those things as being of value, the fact is, is that if you're working in these institutions, that's how you get to a point where you amass enough power and influence and resources to then distribute them in the ways that you think are important. And so much of the efforts that people from our communities do are not honored with titles or publications or money. Mm. So I think you have to pay us. Mm -hmm. You have to pay us mm -hmm. for all the stuff that we do, that we were going to do anyway, mm -hmm. but that if you truly believe is valuable, and you have to give me time to do it. You have to give me money to do it. Mm -hmm. um, because I'm worth it. So I think that's, yeah. that's one really important piece. And I think that's why, even at a place like UCSF, where there's an incredible diversity within the student body, 
There's an incredible diversity within the residency programs, and that varies from one to the next, but generally, and even at the fellowship level. But once you get to faculty, senior leadership, dean, deans of schools, um, and heads of healthcare systems, it just is shut down. And that's why. That's why. Um, I, think that's, I think that's one thing. Um, I think too that folks need to, I don't know if they need to, but I think it's important for young people of color, LGBTQ folks, folks from marginalized communities within our institutions to like decide, decide who you ultimately feel accountable to hmm. and keep that present. So I would never want one of my colleagues to feel like they have to pursue a career in academic medicine because there's nobody else who looks like them in academic medicine. Mm -hmm. And there are people who don't agree with me about this, you know, which is everyone's entitled to their opinion. That's important because um, that's how you grow. But I would never want that for a person who wanted to go work in the community and care for their people the way that they had always dreamed when they met their pediatrician who looked like them in their community and they wanted to become that person when they grew up. I would never want that person to feel obligated to remain, especially within a white supremacist institution that was not built to feed them. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrestle with that because at the same time, I think for ultimate equity to be achieved, we have to be everywhere. Mm. We have to be everywhere. Um, and not just in the ivory towers and academic institutions, but mm -hmm. everywhere, in, in public health spheres, in policy spheres, in activist spheres, everywhere. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know if that's enough, but I think it has to be a place to start. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. That didn't feel like a super satisfying answer, but that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I think, yeah. That's just kind of where I'm at. Like, I, I, yeah, it gets, it gets harder as you try to go higher, higher, quote unquote, up in the academic hierarchy. Um, it gets harder to stay accountable to your purpose because you, at least for me, I feel further and further and further and further away from those communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, even in my very intentional efforts to stay proximate. So I think that's another important thing, too, is to not let, for representation especially, to not let academia divorce you from your communities, to stay proximate to mm -hmm. wherever it is that you come from and whomever it is you feel accountable to so that your accountability doesn't then shift to the institution mm -hmm. but stays where it should. Mm -hmm. And I think what you're saying, referring to what you said in terms of, like, none of this was by mistake, you know, medicine was never created for us anyway, is mm -hmm. that regardless of wherever you land in life, especially for people of historically underrepresented, marginalized backgrounds, is that our presence is revolutionary mm -hmm. because yep. we were never supposed to be here anyway. Mm -hmm. And so the presence of whether you're in the ivory tower, whether you're in academia or any other sphere, that is a revolution in and of itself because you're still here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're making it. You're doing it. Yeah. 
You're doing it. That's what we're doing. We it. Say that all the time. You're doing it. Just, just keep doing the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Just keep doing the thing. We may fall mm-hmm. flat, but mm-hmm. we're gonna get back up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's how you learn. You have to. You have to fail to learn. You can't. You can't otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. And and I think, um, maybe the last thing I'll say with regard to representation is also recognizing, um the importance of building relationships outside of both your clinical discipline and your like professional discipline. So like physicians can't just talk to physicians because mm-hmm. it's the same thing. It's the same thing about being in the room with people who are exactly like you, maybe not exact, but who share a certain perspective, a certain trajectory, a certain experience, and you don't know what you don't know because you're only talking to others who are similar. So that's also something that has been really impactful for me um, in the mentorship that I've received and the ways that I have challenged the things that I still think and still do all the time. Like, that's part of my way of checking myself, too, mm-hmm. um, is holding up lots of mirrors that are unlike me to show me mm-hmm. new things about myself and mm-hmm. about what I'm, what I'm thinking and what I'm doing. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Julian, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, I'm so inspired. I was like, this I should like a whole gem box of just yeah. like takeaways. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much again for being here with us. Yeah. And I'm super inspired. And I, I know that our listeners will definitely take one, two, yeah. many, many gems from this this conversation. And we are, I'm really grateful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I feel, I gotta be honest with y'all, I was real tired when I got here. And I feel <laughs> so much better now. Hey, <laughs> awesome. Yes, community. Community. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. Thank y'all so much. Thanks yeah, for creating you. the platform. Yeah. Keep it up. Yeah. Sure.